driving 1,810 miles to take your son to college is an experience. You are filled with joy because it's, you love this kid. He is a great young man who is better certainly than I was when I was his age. And you're also filled with sadness because as much as I love this kid, I like him and I like being around him and I realize that those days are now over in the sense of him being a young boy in my home. Driving 1,800 miles to South Dakota also fills you with pain because you've never been a particularly good road tripper and your body doesn't fit as well in a car as it used to. Anybody identify with me on that? And you're filled the entire way with conflicting thoughts. The whole way you have words of wisdom and advice that you want to give to this young man, but you realize you just can't dump it on him. And some things you just have to learn for yourself. I'm pretty sure Paul could identify with that last one. He loved the people that he wrote letters to. And a good number of them he even liked. He liked spending time with them but he had to move on and he understood that that time was past and so struggling with how much advice to give in each of his letters you see him struggling to apply what it is that he has been teaching them and in the case of Philippians for three chapters so tonight we're going to begin with part of Paul's take on this idea. How much advice are you going to give? So I'll pick it up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I'm going to steal my big idea from another passage for this passage. It's from Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And I'm going to do this because I I think Paul unpacks this idea from Colossians 3 right here in Philippians chapter 4. So set your minds on things above. 
Now to clarify, before we get started, to set your minds on things above does not mean you only think about heaven. To set your minds on things above means that you value heaven. It means you value stuff and circumstances and relationships only as they lead you to a greater or a lesser relationship to Jesus. We will see in these verses tonight how you think about the world will show the world what you value most and whether your mind is set on things above or on the things of the earth just like everyone else. So we pick it up right where we left off last time, rereading verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This isn't the first time I've told you this, but Paul very often has what I call transition verses. And if you remember, several weeks ago, we already preached on verse 1 because it fit with the passage we had finished. But it also fits with the passage we're starting now. And the reason why I know this is because he says, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So we ask ourselves, what is the thus? What is Paul talking about? Remember, context, context, context. Read what comes before and then read what comes after if you want to know what a word or phrase means. Now in this case, it's pretty clear Paul answers the question, how are we thus to stand firm in the previous section? Namely, in verses 13 and 14, where we started last time. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind, straining for what lies ahead, I press on, Paul says. And Paul instructs his readers with this example. Standing firm, that we read in verse 4-1, involves this forgetting, straining forward, but is encompassed by this idea of pressing on, pressing forward toward the prize. Now, I need to pause because we need to remind ourselves what we learned several weeks ago. What is this prize? What is this goal? What is this upward call of God? Well, we don't know. And that's on purpose. Paul, very often, intentionally leaves things kind of ambiguous. Paul doesn't want to enumerate everything because he wants us to use our imagination and he wants us to use our reasoning so that we can meet with God the Spirit and grow in our love and our overwhelming sense of wonder at the greatness of God and His love for us. He describes this prize this goal elsewhere he says in first corinthians 2 9 as it is written what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined god has prepared this for those who love him we press on towards that which no heart of man has come close to imagining this is the greatness of the christian life pressing on to something that is so 
amazing is beyond what we can comprehend now. The magnitude of the glory that awaits us is worth setting our minds on now. Praise Jesus. But then we need to ask another question. In light of the fact that this living thus, this pressing on, this living for something that we can't quite even imagine yet, in light of the fact that this living thus in the world is so hard, in light of the fact that we have not yet seen what God has been working on for us since day eight, we have to ask the question, why? Why can we live thus? It's so hard. It's so hard. So what power is there available to us so that we can live thusly? Fortunately, Paul answers that in the very next paragraph, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. I need an amen for that. To be like His glorious body. And what, what enables this to happen? By the power that enables God even to subject all things to Himself. Because you have an omnipotent Savior and because you are citizens of a better country and you have a better Lord, therefore, you can thus stand firm by forgetting, by striving, and thus pressing on with a power that comes from God alone. God saves you. God gives you a citizenship in heaven. And God then commands you to stand firm thus in the Lord. Listen. You are free. You are safe. You are loved. You are the child of the King of Kings and the President of Presidents. You are ransomed and redeemed and rich. So praise Jesus. And stand firm thus in the Lord. Praise Jesus. Set your mind on things above. Like this. Now I need to say something else. We have to notice the order of what's going on here. Because we Christians often get confused and we twist the order. We get it out of order and that creates all kinds of havoc. The proper order is you can and therefore must live a redeemed life because you already are redeemed. The Bible never commands you to live a redeemed life, then get redeemed. Now the prime example of this pattern is found in the giving of the Ten Commandments. They were given after Yahweh, the personal creator king of the universe, redeemed Israel out of Egypt. Notice with me Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then, and only then, does verse 3 come. You shall have no other gods before me. Now the therefore is implied in verse 3. Because I brought you out of the land of Egypt, slavery, now worship the right God. Worship the God rightly. Next verse Next slide, please. 
Speak well of God always. Remind yourself frequently who gives you your protection, your provision, and your purpose. Honor your parents. Love everyone. Don't despise anyone. Don't dishonor your spouse. Don't steal. Don't deceive. And don't value stuff more than God or others. That's the Ten Commandments. By the way, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments in a little bit more than a month, very closely. And I've already begun preparation. And I can't wait. Praise Jesus. But back to our text today. The Christian life will remain a pretty little mystery to you unless you understand that the command to stand firm follows verses 3, 20 to 21. You have been redeemed. Now you are commanded to live holy because God has declared you holy and has given you the Holy Spirit so that you may grow in holiness. Nevertheless, as every single person in this room knows from experience and from Scripture, we remain in the flesh until we are glorified. A part of us is yet unredeemed. We still fall to the temptation of sin. We remain connected to that which is sinful and therefore not yet fully redeemed. And so we fight, we bite, we pout, we scream. And James tells us exactly this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, you can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Which brings us right back to our passage in verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I entreat you, Odia, and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Oh, Lord, we argue and we fight. Forgive us. Lord, unite us to agree in the Lord. But then we have to ask the question, what does it mean to agree in the Lord? Context, context, context. First of all, as we see here, it means to stop fighting. Stop it. Don't do it. Refuse to take part. Plainly, this is Paul's command here in verses 2 and 3, and it is consistent with 1 Corinthians 1.10, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Stop fighting. Let there be no divisions among you, but let you be united in the same mind with the same judgment. This unity, this stop fighting this agreeing in the Lord, we can take one step deeper. To agree in the Lord is to apply biblical thought, or as Paul alludes here in verse 10, to agree with the same judgment. And to agree in the Lord is to apply Christian love to all our disagreements so that this truth spoken in love brings unity. It brings this agreeing in the Lord. So pursue truth in love so that you will agree in the Lord. But we need to take a closer look at these two verses. 
what we see in these two verses is not simply a command, Euodius, and to keep stop fighting. It is that. But two of the most important themes in all of Philippians comes to the fore once again. One is that this corporate unity this, and the responsibility to pursue corporate unity. And, on the other hand, this foundational bed rock necessity, this undergirding of the return of Christ and how Christ's return relates to our Christian living today. The first is this unity and the responsibility to pursue unity. Note how important this unity and this pursuit of unity is to Paul. He makes this clear in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we come to our passage, Paul instructs the leadership of the church to get personally involved in the fight. He's calling on the elders to get involved. Make sure that you are pursuing unity and the leadership of the church needs to be personally involved so that this disunity does not disrupt the body of Christ. Unity is essential to life in the body of Christ. So significant, so essential, that Jesus Himself made it clear that our affiliation with Him is on the line. Where does He say this? John chapter 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How are we to love one another? Just like He loves us you also ought to love one another. By this, by this kind of sacrificial love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is tying our witness to those around us to the fact whether or not we are loving their Christian brothers and sisters. So if you want your near ones to recognize the value of worshiping Christ, you will have no better example to follow than Christ when you disagree with your fellow brothers and sisters. Love them like Christ loves you. And when you love them, when you take steps to resolve your disputes biblically, you will be showing the world that you have set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And nothing, nothing besides suffering well for Christ is a better example to those near you of what it means to know God better and therefore to love Him and trust Him more. When you are able to show your neighbors that you're willing to take a slight and brush it off your shoulders, they will know that you serve a better God than they do. And, as important as this is, equally important, though I think, in my opinion, is more neglected, equally important is the return of Christ in terms of how Christians view our responsibility to live like Jesus. Paul reminds us to think about the book of life. He says to Clement to to help these women whose names are in the book of life. 
And having your names in the book of life on that day is, we'll call it, important. John tells us, in fact, in his revelation that those whose names are written in the book of life are clothed with white. Jesus will confess our name before the Father and we will have a place in his heavenly city. And those whose names are not written in the book of life will worship the beast instead of Jesus and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Lord, save us and save those who are our near ones. So I have a question. In light of this, in light of the fact that Euodia and Syntyche were women whose names were written in the book of life, in light of the fact that you and I have our names written in the book of life, how can it be that those whose names are written in the book of life, how can it be that those who are objects of such blessing argue and bite and scratch at each other? Indeed, that is a fair question. It is because our flesh rules our minds rather than setting our minds on things above our flesh. And so, Paul gives us very clear, explicit instruction. Paul says that we should make every effort to live at peace with everyone so long as it depends on us. Paul commands us to resolve our, or to settle our disputes biblically, to rely on Scripture to show us God's will. Paul tells us that we are to give those near us the benefit of the doubt because we love them. And finally, Paul tells us, be willing to be wronged. Be willing to be wronged. Do this, when you do this, you will have set your minds on things above. Setting our minds on things above will be obvious right where he goes next in verses 4 through 7. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, we return to the question of joy versus happiness. I'm bringing this up because it seems such a constant question that Christians come up with. Is, are we to pursue happiness, or are we to pursue joy? Now, I've told you before that the Bible doesn't really stress a significant difference between joy and happiness. If I were pressed to the wall, I would say that the Bible does separate the kind of happiness that comes merely from circumstances and that kind of happiness that comes from trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. If you call the former happiness and the latter joy, so be it. But if you do, remember, remember, recognize that this happiness and this joy are not experienced differently by those who trust God's promises. They're not experienced differently by believers. What I mean is this. If you rejoice in the Lord, you will also be recognizably happy. 
those who are near you will recognize that you are not some dour sourpuss. Your near ones will see that you are happy. Even if that happiness surpasses all understanding because they don't get it. How can you have peace? How can you have joy in the midst of this circumstance? It's because you serve the Lord of Lords and the President of Presidents. And your joy or your happiness is not dependent upon your circumstances. A more important question for the believer is not this idea of happiness versus joy, but the more important question is how do I go about living in such a way that I can have this joy? How is it that I can go about living so that I have happiness in the presence promises of God for me in Christ? And the answer that Paul gives is one thing. Prayer. Which, by the way, it occurs to me, Christians don't have more joy because we don't pray. We fill up our time with TV, with video games, with internet, with all kinds of things, but prayer. And Paul shows himself a master of language by emphasizing different synonyms for prayer. He's not trying to make a distinction between different kinds of prayer. Maybe that's part of it. But Paul is using a literary technique so that his readers will remember how important it is to fix our eyes on Jesus in prayer. The solution to your painful circumstances is prayer as opposed to the so-called promises of distraction that this world gives. Empty, vain, deceitful promises that give no water. But I also want you to note the the tight consistency. Paul has not left his former idea with Euodian Syntyche. He's, He's still got this idea in his head. When he's talking about division in the church, he then commanded, let your reasonableness be known to all. Wait, what? Where where does this reasonableness come from? Ask yourself. Do you want some of this joy? Do you want some of this peace that Jesus offers even in the midst of strife? Do you want to have happiness that doesn't depend on whether you have been wronged by a sister or not? Then put away such self-attention and pray. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Again, the emphasis in the command is to rejoice in all things, is not to put a fake smile upon it. The emphasis throughout the Bible, for example, Ephesians 5, James 1, the first six chapters of Daniel, the emphasis throughout the Bible is to look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your mind on things above so that when you are struggling, when you are going through difficult circumstances, when it is hard to be happy, the joy that you have put into your spiritual bank account will have a greater balance than your fear of your circumstances. So pray. Now, before the dark days come. 
And it is this, it is prayer, not fear, that is the reasonable thing to do. It is reasonable, Christian, for you to trust the promises of God and take those promises to God and say, Lord, give. Lord, I need. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because the Lord has always loved a desperate soul. That is the most reasonable thing for Christians to do. Note why we should rejoice, why we should demonstrate reasonableness. Paul tells us in verse 5, he says, the Lord is at hand. Now Paul gives the exact same argument two chapters earlier, almost exactly two chapters earlier. When he's commanding us to live humbly, he goes straight to the second coming of Jesus. He says in 2 verses 10 and 11, he says, At the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why are we to live humbly? Philippians chapter 2. Why is it that we are to be willing to be wronged? Philippians chapter 4. It is because at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And the Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming. And He is coming quickly. Christ's soon return gives us the mental space to be others-centric. Or in terms of our passage tonight, we can be heavenly-minded. We can be reasonable when wronged. Christ's soon return gives us the mental space to be happy, joyful, even when our circumstances are not as we would wish them to be. And then... We can love others. We can be willing to sacrifice for the good of whichever beloved is near us at that moment. Especially when they've wronged us. And Christ's soon return is the solution to anxiety, which is exactly where Paul goes. We think, I'm not getting to do what I want. I'm not getting to be near I'm not getting my near one to do what I want. I'm not getting to have what I want. Yes, and what makes you different than the other 7 billion people on the earth? Christ coming again. Christ coming again will make every bit of this momentary and light affliction that you suffer to be overwhelmed with a weight of glory you cannot even imagine yet. So rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice! And again, I will say, rejoice! Love! Pray! Be willing to be wronged! Throw anxiety away and praise Jesus! And evidently, 
Evidently, Paul believes that this kind of joy, this love, this release from anxiety comes first and foremost through a life that is characterized by prayer. By saying to Jesus, I can't do this. Help me, Lord Jesus. Give me, Lord Jesus. Help me. Help my unbelief. To the extent that you allow your heart to beat for things and circumstances and relationship, to that extent, you are not living a life of prayer. And to the extent you allow your heart to beat for these things, to that extent, you are not experiencing love, joy, and peace. Because you'll never have all the things that you want. You can't. And he goes back to peace. Peace. Peace is the emphasis of verse 7. Note the clear connection. Obey this command, pray, and you will experience peace. It's almost as if Paul anticipated John Samus's hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Paul makes crystal clear using the examples of Jesus, using the examples of himself and others. And Paul makes it clear through exhortation in the first three chapters of Philippians and through tears in many of his people. Then Paul makes it clear by just putting it right in black and white in front of us. Paul makes it clear that we are to know and live the commands and promises of God is the way that our hearts can be filled and shaped and molded and worked on by love and joy and peace. For there's no other way. There's no other way. So set your mind on things above. Which brings us to the conclusion of this section. Verses 8 and 9. Paul says, finally. (laughs) I think that's funny. He says, finally, and he's got another half page of the book. He must have been a good preacher. (laughs) Finally. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace, the God of peace will be with you. You are what you think about. That is an absolute statement. Do you think about garbage? Do you think about gossip? Do you think about lies? Do you think about things that really don't matter a hill of beans, then that's where your mind and hearts are going to be. Do you think as you go through your day at work? Do you think as you go through your day at home and your relationships? Do you think about those things which are true and honorable and just and pure? As you do, your minds and hearts will be set on things above and not on things below. Now again, 
we come to this question. Does that mean that I have to only think about heaven? No, of course not. It means that as you go through your day, you are thinking about your day as it relates to your relationship with your Father in heaven. It means that as your brain shifts back into neutral, which it will do several times a day, you train it to tune your heart to the values of heaven, to seeing the glory of God, to set your minds on things above means that you value what God values. And that when you are valuing stuff and circumstances and relationships, which we all must do while we are in this flesh, we are doing so in such a way that God is getting the glory and not our stuff. When you set your mind and heart to value that which is truly good, you will find your heart filled with good. Filled with thoughts of God the Father working in you and through you and for you, for His glory, for the growth of His kingdom, and for your joy. And Lord, we find this hard to do. In fact, we find it impossible to do on our own. Which is why we must pray. And we pray now, Lord Jesus, that You would work in us. That You would work through us. And You would work for us so that Your name will be glorified. And I pray that you would bless us now as we turn to your table. The men will come forward. And as we come to this table, we recognize that he has given us all we need here. We are redeemed already, therefore we can live redeemed. And the point of this meal, the point of taking the body and the blood, is so that we will remember that He has already done it for us. So now we can live rejoicing in Him.
partake and be nourished by the strength of the body of Christ so that you may bring glory to him. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of him. Receive the cleansing for your sin, washing away your doubts and your fears, which we all still have. Receive the cleansing so that you may set your minds on things above. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of him. God the Father, bless your children. God the Son, receive our glory of your gracious name. God the Spirit, move in and through us so that you will glorify your name above all things in this world. Bless us so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.